Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters really did conquer and unify Westeros because Aegon had a prophetic dream about the end of the world, the White Walkers, and the prince that was promised. This begs the question, what did Aegon and subsequent Targaryen monarchs do with this prescient knowledge? What did they do to prepare for this mysterious threat to all warm-blooded life that Aegon saw coming from the north? Well, a large part of the answer can be found with the deeds of King Jaehaerys and, actually more importantly, Queen Alysanne Targaryen, who visited Winterfell and the Wall and did all kinds of interesting stuff, including shutting down that White Walker baby factory known as the Night Fort. Hey there, friends. David Lightbringer here. And yes, one of the biggest questions that the fandom as a whole is asking about the reveal that Aegon conquered and unified Westeros to prepare for a prophesied return of the Long Night and the White Walkers is what else did the Targaryens do to get ready for the end of days? So just a heads up, this video won't have quite the same density of artwork as usual because I'll be talking in detail about a few events for which there just isn't a lot of art. So it's going to be a little more of me talking and waving my arms than usual. But on the plus side, this Alisane at the Wall stuff is really cool. And I'm super excited, so my arm waving should be in peak form. And we'll just rein that in a little bit there. All right. So in terms of the Targaryens prepping for the Long Night, we talked a lot in the third video in the series about the possibility that Aegon flat out told Torrhen Stark about his dream. The idea here would be that their agreement to have Torrhen yield the north to Aegon and House Targaryen was based upon a shared understanding of the threat that the White Walkers posed and of the need for the Targaryens and their dragons to be around to counter such a threat. In fact, I bet Aegon told Torrhen Stark was basically an instant reaction to the news of Aegon's prophecy that a lot of people had back when George first mentioned the idea in an interview several years ago. And now, after taking a close look at it, I think it's very, very likely that Aegon did tell Torrhen Stark about his dream. Do check out the Why Did the Starks Kneel video for the full exploration of this possibility. But if it turns out to be true, then obviously we can say that the first thing the Targaryens did to prepare for fighting a war in the far north was to bring the Starks in, not only as loyal subjects, but as reliable allies with whom they had made a cooperative agreement. And most importantly, not as bitter, beaten foes with a fire-blasted countryside full of men with missing limbs and horrific burn scars. All right. So, for example, just after the conquest, Aegon was able to call upon Torin, who was now his Warden of the North, to help smash a rebellion on the Three Sisters, with Visenya and Vagar even showing up as backup to sort of nail down the victory. Which means that this was actually the first occurrence of Starks fighting alongside Targaryens with their dragons, which is a pretty important precedent now, isn't it? 
So although Aegon and his sisters didn't have any spare children to marry to any Starks, they're busy making incest lizard babies, of course, the Targaryens did broker a very important marriage alliance between House Stark and House Arryn, with Ronald Arryn, the young Lord of the Vale, taking the daughter of Torrhen Stark to wife. Aegon and his sisters brokered many such marriages after the conquest as a way of knitting their realm together to much success, and they were sure to include House Stark. I mentioned in the Torrhen video that Aegon returned to Winterfell in 33 AC, a mere four years before his death. But upon further research, it actually turns out that Aegon visited the Greater North six times, six, during his reign, holding court thrice in White Harbor, twice at Barrowton, and, of course, once at Winterfell on that final royal progress in 33 AC. In other words, the conquerors didn't just conquer, but worked very hard to create a unified Westeros that reached all the way to Winterfell and the Wall. Aegon and his sisters also built a suitable royal capital for their new kingdom in King's Landing around this time, and they did many other things besides to make Westeros an actual unified kingdom. That's important because holding the kingdom together, after all, is a major part of what Aegon would have wanted to do to ensure that there would be Targaryens around to fight the last battle, whenever that came. One year after that royal progress, in 34 AC, King Aegon's grandson, Jaehaerys, was born. And he, and especially his sister wife, Queen Alysanne, who was born two years later in 36 AC, are definitely the next Targaryens who seemed to act like they were preparing for a potential battle with the White Walkers. King Aenys and King Maegor did each rule for a short handful of years between the long reigns of Aegon and Jaehaerys. But Aenys's weak reign was consumed by rebellions against his rule, and Maegor's cruel reign was consumed by... Ah yes, rebellions against his rule. In other words, neither Aenys nor Maegor seem to have done much concerning the North or preparing the kingdom for a new long night. Unless, of course, you want to say that Maegor fought a war against the Faith to preserve the Targaryens' right to wed brother to sister, which is seemingly necessary, of course, to maintain the Targaryens' magical ability to bond with and ride their dragons, which, of course, they'll need to do to save the world from the White Walkers. Incest for the win! However, it was actually Jaehaerys and Alysanne who successfully established a lasting agreement with the Faith that resulted in a new doctrine of Targaryen exceptionalism. And it was also Alysanne and Jaehaerys who helped sell this new doctrine to the people of Westeros, in part by being so handsome and charming. Ah, yes, that helps. So really, the credit for preserving the Targaryens' right to keep it in the family for the sake of all warm-blooded life on Earth goes to Jaehaerys and Alysanne, and not Maegor. So aside from the incest thing and a broader establishment of cooperation with the faith, Jaehaerys and Alysanne also did a great deal more of what Aegon and his sister wives did, working to improve and solidify the kingdom in a thousand countless ways. I guess you can count a thousand. Specifically, that's a number, but you get the point. They did a lot, from Jaehaerys bringing fresh water into King's Landing and, most importantly, making it available to the common people, to Alysanne's famous women's councils, where she heard the concerns and affairs of the women of the realm from the highborn to the low. In terms of prepping for the end of days, that's right, the Targaryens are doomsday preppers. 
That, that's, that's the takeaway here. The most important of these sorts of civic actions that Jaharis and Alassane carried out was undoubtedly beginning work on and completing much of Westeros's famous King's Road and many other regional roads as well, such as the Rose Road, the Gold Road, and so on. I say most important for long night prep because Jaharis planned from the beginning to extend the King's Road not only to Winterfell, but to the wall itself. That's right, the first thing Jaharis did was build a road all the way to the wall, not to Old Town, not to Casterly Rock, but all the way to Castle Black. It was a first place, so yeah. Now here's the thing about roads. Obviously they're great for moving goods and thus a major facilitator of commerce between the various regions of Westeros, and therefore yet another great way to continue to knit a realm together. But roads are perhaps even more important for maintaining control of a kingdom because they are how you move armies and their supply chains across long distances with the kind of haste that one feels during wartime. Building a nice wide road from King's Landing to the Wall and running through Winterfell is probably one of the smartest and most practical things that the Targaryens ever did to prepare for a huge war that will eventually be fought somewhere in the north. Dragons fly, of course, and as we know, they eat whatever they want. But they'll need armies to back them up, and those armies will need a lot of food. So you can see how this works. The ancient ancestors of the Targaryens, the Valerians, certainly knew how this worked as they famously created arrow-straight highways of nearly unbreakable fused stone, which spanned the far reaches of their empire and which were used both for commerce and for moving armies. So really, it's surprising that the Targaryens didn't build a big highway sooner. And by the way, serious note, it should be noted that for Valeria, when I say commerce... Well, the commerce included human chattel slavery, just so we're not glossing over the true nature of the Valerian Empire. But yeah, roads, armies, empires. its It's been a thing all throughout real history as well, as any historian can tell you. And Kanye West is not a historian, all right. Now, one of the main things that motivated Jaehaerys to begin work on the King's Road in 62 AC was his trip to Winterfell in 58 AC, where his and Alysanne's retinue and baggage trains had to slog through a patchwork of country roads and just straight-up countryside in order to cross the north and reach Winterfell. And apparently it was very hard and took a long time. However, Jaehaerys, seeing the need for something like the King's Road, it's really just the appetizer, for this royal progress gives us prophecy hunters a lot to chew on. An entire feast of mammoth meats worth, in fact. And that's what Alessandra ate at Castle Black. Mammoth meats, but we'll get there. All right, here's the basic framework of the story of Alysanne and Jaehaerys visiting Winterfell and the Wall. So Alysanne and Jaehaerys originally plan to fly north on their royal progress together, after allowing their baggage train and retinue to leave ahead of time and prepare the way for them. However, very pressing affairs at court conspired to keep Jaehaerys pinned down at the last second. They decide to have Alysanne go ahead as planned, with Jaehaerys then intending to catch up with them at Winterfell. White Harbor is first on the progress, and being a house that originated in the Reach and therefore keeps the ways of the Seven and of chivalry, the Manderleys knew how to treat a queen right and threw Alysanne a proper welcome. However, she got a much colder, one might say, 
Starker greeting in Winterfell as Alaric Stark, fly Alaric Stark, the lord of Winterfell. Well, it turned out he had been harboring a grudge against Jaehaerys, whom he blamed for the death of his older brother, Walton Stark. Lord Walton died in the course of putting down a Night's Watch rebellion by a bunch of former warrior sons and poor fellows, who are the knights and sort of thug soldiers of the faith. You'll remember the poor fellows carving bloody stars in their foreheads on the TV show. The, the, those guys. So these church warriors, they had been sent to the wall by Jaehaerys after the Faith's war with Magor the Cruel. And Alaric Stark had been pretty open about the fact that he thought Jaehaerys should have just executed them instead. A very stark thing to say, right? And essentially Alaric was saying that Jaehaerys had overburdened and overrun the Watch with non-loyal men by sending up so many warrior sons and poor fellows. And that's why it's his fault. Now, on top of that grudge, Alaric also had a reputation as being stingy, truculent, humorless, Stark-like, if you will, uh, and so forth. Enter good queen Alisanne and her legendary charm and wisdom, however, and before long, Alisanne had single-handedly won over Alaric and his court, even getting Alaric to laugh at jokes and approach her dragon, Silverwing of whom Alaric had been very cautious and fearful at first. And yes, as you can see from some of the artwork, many people have shipped Alisanne and Fly Alaric Stark, whose fearsome Mormont wife had died years earlier. So after a time with Jaehaerys still not being free to join her, Alisanne grew restless and decided to visit the Wall, where she was, I'm happy to say, well-received by the Black Brothers at Castle Black, and was, yes, served up a feast of roast mammoth, which she was reportedly delighted to partake in. So besides Alisanne and Jaehaerys providing general support for the Watch, three specifically notable things happened at the Wall which we need to examine in detail. One, Alisanne tried, but failed, to get her dragon to fly over the wall. Two, Alisanne held a women's council at Molestown, of all places, and there learned the true horror of the custom known as the First Night. And three, Alisanne had the Night Fort decommissioned and paid for a new replacement castle to be built at Deep Lake, in part with her own jewels. In addition to those things, Alisanne and Jaehaerys also doubled the size of Brandon's Gift, which is the name of the lands just south of the Wall which the Night's Watch possess to farm and draw support from. This falls under the general category of strengthening the Watch, which, like I said, Alisanne and Jaehaerys did a lot of. For example, they also discussed and addressed basically all the needs of the Watch in detailed conversations that Alisanne held with the Lord Commander. Obviously, strengthening the watch is something you'd want to do if you were a Targaryen monarch concerned with the threat of a new long night. And in fact, even Jaehaerys' potential mistake of sending too many anti-Targaryen former church soldiers to the wall could easily be thought of as a pretty solid attempt to strengthen the watch by swelling its ranks full of capable fighting men. All right, here's the passage where Alisanne couldn't get her dragon to fly over the wall. The queen herself noted that Silverwing does not like this wall. Though it was summer and the wall was weeping, the chill of the ice could still be felt wherever the wind blew, and every gust would make the dragon hiss and snap. Thrice I flew Silverwing high above Castle Black, and thrice I tried to take her north beyond the wall, Alisanne wrote to Jaehaerys. 
But every time she veered back south again and refused to go. Never before has she refused to take me where I wished to go. I laughed about it when I came down so the Black Brothers would not realize anything was amiss. But it troubled me then, and it troubles me still. It's pretty easy to see why this would trouble Alisanne and Jaehaerys, right? Not just for the fact that the dragon refused her command for the first time, but for the fact that there's apparently something about the wall that the dragons either really, really don't like, or which may actually repel them by force of magic. Given that Aegon's prophecy warns of a cold threat from the north, the sudden realization that they can't just fly their dragons over the wall would be especially disconcerting, as it kind of is to us, the reader. And the dragon's reaction to the chill wind blowing off the wall also suggests that the dragons may have trouble with a foe that wields ice magic and icy winds as a weapon. And by the way, that's one of the things that I think the show got right, showing us that those cold winds that come with white walkers are going to be trouble for the dragons. I mean, it wouldn't be any fun if they just flew over the wall and melted everybody. It's like, all right, that was easy. Let's go home. Now, so right after this incident, it's pretty notable that Alisande made a point to journey north of the wall herself on foot. That's right, she had the Lord Commander of the Watch take her into the haunted forest with a 100 Ranger escort just to sort of, I don't know, take in the ambiance. There's also a very curious little passage in Fire and Blood where a very old Jaehaerys is recounting a tale to his great-grandchildren of having, quote, flown his dragon north to the wall to defeat a vast host of wildlings, giants, and wargs. Strangely, there is no other record of this battle in Fire and Blood or anywhere else, save for the fact that Sam briefly mentions that Jaehaerys came to the wall with his dragon some time after Alisan's visit. But that's it. So all we can say is that Jaehaerys did apparently bring Vermithor to the wall to fight a battle against wargs and giants. We can probably assume that his dragon wouldn't cross the wall either, but it is possible that Jaehaerys himself may have, as Alisan did, and either way, we can see Jaehaerys taking a continued interest in the wall. More on this in a moment. So as far as Alisan goes, we can see that she responded to her dragon refusing to fly north of the wall by going there herself, and she followed that up by asking to be taken to a few other castles on the wall to have a look around. She had the first ranger escort her along the top of the wall, where she got a good taste of those chill winds, and they went west to the next castle, which was Snowgate, and then on to the next one, which was the Night Fort, where they descended and spent the night. Alisanne reportedly found the Night Fort grim and sinister. It is the Night Fort, after all, telling Jaehaerys that there is a darkness there, a taste in the air. I was so glad to leave that place. Now, ostensibly, Alisanne had the watch decommission the night fort because of the ruinous costs of heating such a huge, drafty, run-down castle. But there may be more to it. Alisanne, as I mentioned, pledged her own jewels to cover the initial costs of building the castle Deep Lake to replace the night fort. So it seems like something she really wanted done, and the obvious reason to think about in the context of Aegon's prophecy is that the Night Fort is, of course, where legend says that Night's King and his corpse queen sacrificed to the others. And we know that 
Sacrificing to the others is a euphemism which refers to the craster-like process of giving your male children to the others so that they can either be turned into others or be elsewise used to create or sustain the others, all through the use of dark magic, of course. As I just mentioned, Alisan is on record as feeling the creepy vibes of the Night Fort, and she probably was aware of the legend of Night's King and his corpse queen by this time, as we can assume that the Targaryens would have been looking into anything they could find about the Others and the Long Night, any sort of threat from the North, right? In fact, it's specifically mentioned that Alaric Stark gave Alysan, whom Septon Barth, by the way, said was so smart that she could have been an Archmaester of the Citadel, if they weren't so sexist, uh-huh. Access to the Winterfell libraries, the same Winterfell libraries where Tyrion found several books on ancient lore that he thought were worth reading. Therefore, it makes a lot of sense that Alysan might have seen the Night Fort as a potential weakness that could be exploited by the others again, and would have wanted it shut down and its passage through the wall sealed up as it was. Now, Alisande didn't know about the secret Black Gate passage, which was found down the well shaft. As we saw, Sam and Coldhands were still able to use that gate in a storm of sorts. But apart from that, Alisande put the Night Fort on ice. In any case, it's safe to say that Alisan earned the loyalty and gratitude of the Night's Watch. There is actually, to this day, if we're, if we're living in Westeros, to this day, a statue of Alisan standing outside the Castle Deep Lake. And the Watch even renamed the other castle she visited, Snowgate, to Queensgate, in her honor. So, third item, as I mentioned earlier, Alisan was famous for holding her women's councils and finding no women at Castle Black. She soon learned of the existence of Molestown and promptly went there instead. At Molestown, Alisan heard all the thoughts and concerns of the women there, who are of course predominantly sex workers and their families. It is here that Alisan learned the true horror of the ancient first man custom called the Rite of the First Night. And here I'll give a slight trigger warning for general discussion of sexual assault and rape. Because as we know, the right of the first night is the practice whereby a lord has the the right, the right, quote-unquote, to have sex with a newlywed wife of any of his vassals, and on their wedding night, no less. So it's obviously a horrific custom which amounts to legalized rape, and though it had largely fallen out of practice in the south, it was still practiced by some lords in the north. So, at Molestown, as well as White Harbor and Barrowton, Alisan heard the stories of the broken lives which are left in the wake of these first nights. And as a result, as soon as they got back from this progress, Alisan successfully lobbied her husband Jaehaerys and Septon Barth, his hand and most trusted advisor, to have this custom outlawed and to have any offending lords held accountable for rape. So that's all well and good. Bravo to Alisan, obviously one of the best human beings to be found anywhere in this story. One of the people who's made the most difference in the world. But what does this have to do with Aegon's prophecy and preparing for the battle with the White Walkers? Well, quite a bit in all likelihood. All right, it's time for Deep Nightfort Theory. Not deep as in complex, but 
deep as in the well shaft in the center of the Knight's Fort's kitchen that leads to the underground passage through the wall known as the Black Gate, which is of course a giant white talking weird face that swallows you to let you pass. It's long been theorized by some that this passage was used by the original Night's King, who of course reigned at the Night Fort, to deliver his sons to the others as offerings, just as Craster leaves his male children out in the woods for the others to find and collect. Now, I myself have all kinds of wild, heretical ideas about the Night Fort, Night's King and Queen, and the creation of the others. So check out my other's playlist if you like heresy and White Walkers. But pretty much any way you slice it, the Black Gate Weirwood Organism is one of the most remarkable and magical and unique things to be found anywhere in this book series. And undoubtedly, it played some part in the magical acts carried out at the Night Fort by Knights King and Queen. I think it may go well beyond simply using it as a passage, but the fact that it does serve as a secret passage through the wall is very suggestive. And I think there's even a clue that the Black Gate was used to deliver babies to the White Walkers to be found in the name of the other castle which Alisan visited, Queen's Gate, which used to be called Snowgate. Here's what I mean. The Black Gate might be a Snowgate and a Queen's Gate. And here's what I mean by that. So the last name given to bastard children born in the North is Snow, right? John Snow, Ramsay Snow. And some people in the fandom think that this may be a clue that some bastard children or unwanted children were given to the others in ancient day to become snow people in truth. There are also tales of parents throwing such unwanted children down wells as well. Tyrion speaks of this once, for example. And here at the Night Fort, we have a snow white gate, as it's described, that leads through the wall, which is hidden down a well shaft. So did the Night's King deliver his little snows down the well shaft and then through the black gate, perhaps to Night's Queen herself? Or was it simply that his snows were already the Queen's children and were simply delivered through the black gate to join their snowy brethren? So you see what I mean, the black gate might be both a snow gate and a queen's gate. To sum all that up, uh, the creation of unwanted bastard children in the North may, in some cases, be tied to the worship of the others. And the actions of Knights King and Queen at the Night Fort, which, by the way, is the oldest castle on the wall, and I suspect older than the wall, but that's a story for another day, I suspect the actions of Knights King and Queen at the Night Fort may have been the first or one of the first occurrences of this custom. Craster, after all, is almost certainly not the only one in the North giving his children to the others. As we hear about the men of the frozen shore worshipping cold gods of snow and ice, which, you know, can only be the White Walkers. And if you think about it, if indeed these baby sacrifices are needed to maintain the others' very existence, as I suspect, then the others would have needed a constant source of snow babies going back hundreds and thousands of years. And that source may be, in some cases, the custom of the first night itself, which sometimes produces bastard children who may be wanted by no one. As the Lord's claiming such rights 
most often wouldn't want their bastards around. And there would also be cases where the woman violated by the Lord, as well as her husband, who may be angry and jealous, may not want to raise the child either such as in one of the tales that Alisan heard at Molestown. Now, although the others wouldn't have any way of collecting children from south of the Wall, at least not that we know of, although they may be able to use the Weirwoods to spy and teleport, check out my Ice Spiders video. It is still true that eliminating the first night south of the Wall would still be eradicating a custom that once did provide the others with children before the Wall was built. Worst of all, there may have been other Lord Commanders, for all we know, besides Night's King, who passed bastard children through the wall to the others. Whether those children be bastards born of dalliances by Night's Watchmen, or simply bastards of people living in the North. Craster, for that matter, is the bastard son of a Night's Watchman and a wildling woman from White Tree Village. So you can see how easy it is for the Night's Watch to... Get wrapped up in baby sacrifice to the others. It's a, it's a slippery slope from guarding the wall to birthing white walkers. What can I say? And do recall that the higher-ups and the rangers of the watch are aware of Craster's sacrifices to the others and still tolerate them. So there's an interesting hint as to the real origin of the first night custom that comes from Jaehaerys's Justiciar, one Lord Albin Massey. And again, you see what I'm saying about there's, there's not artwork of Lord Albin Massey, regrettably. But Lord Massey does say the following when discussing the first night with Jaehaerys and Alisan upon their return from the north. There is more to the first night than lust, your grace. The practice is an ancient one, older than the Andals, older than the faith. It goes back to the Dawn Age, I do not doubt. The first men were a savage race, and like the wildlings beyond the wall, they followed only strength. Their lords and kings were warriors, mighty men and heroes, and they wanted their sons to be the same. If a warlord chose to bestow his seed upon some maid on her wedding night, it was seen as a sort of blessing. And if a child should come of the coupling, so much the better. The husband could then claim the honor of raising a hero. Now, Alisan, keeping it real like always, responds with some tart lines about how the lords claiming the first night now are no heroes, but rather, and I quote, old men, fat men, Cruel men, poxy boys, rapers, droolers, lords who have not washed in half a year, and many more. Kidding aside, it's pretty gross, and so is the custom itself, which of course is the point of what Alisan is saying. Nonetheless, it's also true that Justicier Massey has a point that the custom's origins are not purely based on lust and abuse of power, but also on this concept of trying to spread the seed of heroes to produce more heroes. Except, and you may have guessed by now, that it's not heroes we're talking about, but rather people with magical gifts, skin changing and green seeing to be specific. Vermeer Sixskins, who is himself a thoroughly disgusting individual, does show us exactly how this would work. So much like a lord claiming his first knight, he uses his shadow cat to intimidate and command any woman that he lays eyes on to come to his cave and suffer his sexual assaults. Vermeer laments that though he got many wildling women pregnant, again, he's an awful person, none of them were born with the gift. And we know that the odds of being born a skin changer are supposed to be fairly low, even if you have the right bloodline. So this does check out. 
Despite Vermeer's failure to birth another skin changer, you can see what he's doing. Slaking his lusts and need to dominate others, yes, obviously, but also trying to birth a son or daughter with his own gift of skin changing. So the final piece of the puzzle is realizing that the ancient kings and warlords of the first men would often, more often than not, have been skin changers and green seers themselves. As Justiciar Massey says, the leaders of the first men were the most powerful among them, just as Vermeer became a local warlord and then one of the most important and powerful wildlings when their entire nation assembled under Mance Raider. We also hear tell of an ancient warlord called the Warg King, who fought a war with an ancient Stark King of Winter, so Warg on Warg, for control of Sea Dragon Point. Tellingly, the Warg King was said to go to war with his beasts and green seers, plural, which strongly implies that Dawn Age Westeros had more skin changers walking around and waging war and playing king than we've heard of in more recent history. And by the way, many of the most legendary ancient figures of Westeros, like Garth the Green, the Grey King of Ironborn legend, Lan the Clever, and Durin Godsgrief have both many, many clues that they were skin changers and green seers, as well as accounts of them having many, many children, over a hundred, some of them. There's a lot more to it, so check out King Bran 1, Green Seer Kings of Ancient Westeros for the full story. So you can see how this dark custom of the first night might have come about. These heroes that Lord Massey speaks of wanted to spread their seed in many cases because they were trying to birth the next skin changer warlord. It sounds like a reality show. The next skin changer warlord. It may have been an unwanted side effect that some of these unwanted bastard snows ended up left outside in the woods and were then collected by the others. Or more likely, it may be that some of these ancient warlords worshipped the cold gods of snow and ice, just as Craster and other wildlings in the far north still do, and that those warlords needed to birth many sons to live up to their packs with the cold gods. It's important to understand that those who worship the others in this way have essentially formed a pact with the others, just as Craster explains. For example, in exchange for Craster's sacrifices, his home is never attacked by the whites or the others. And he's never attacked by other wildlings either, who may well fear him because of his unholy arrangement with the others. Ancient first men of the North may have gained power in exactly this way. At the end of the day, it may be that the others covet that sweet, sweet skin changer and green seer blood, that they can somehow do more with such a person should they be able to work their magic on them. Can they make a new Night's King, for example, instead of just making or sustaining ordinary White Walkers? What really ties all this together for me is the fact that John is a skin changer bastard of the North named Snow, whom the others may well covet. In fact, I think that's exactly what John is, the prince that was promised to the others, meaning that John is potentially the fulfillment of an ancient pact that the Starks themselves once had with the others to provide them baby snows. Once again, I have to say there's a lot more to this theory, so check out my video. Sorry to keep saying that, but the Jon Snow playlist actually is full of all of my videos 
about this whole prince that was promised to the others thing. But the important thing for right now, without watching all five or seven videos or whatever's in that list, is that you can think of Sam and Gilly rescuing Gilly's son from the fate of being given to the others as a kind of template, a heroic night's watchman stealing a baby promised to the others, with the others then being pissed off about it and later coming for that baby, as they did for Gilly's baby monster. So, once in the ancient past, perhaps, a heroic knight's watchman, probably the last hero, by the way, may have done something similar. But instead of rescuing a child of a wildling like Craster, who is giving their sons to the others, think about this as being the child of the knight's king himself, who, by the way, Old Nan says was a Stark. And you know, Old Nan is only speaking hashtag facts about things like The Others and Night's King. What that means is that John may actually be caught at a kind of three-way magical bloodline intersection. He's the blood of House Targaryen and almost certainly part of the fulfillment of the prince that was promised prophecy along with Danny. John is of course part skin changer, which is a gift the first men picked up by mingling their blood with the children of the forest, or even the green men. And John is also of the bloodline of House Stark, who are, let's say, intimately connected to the others. The Starks may have been giving the others children, as I mentioned, or they may have even had a hand in their original creation, who would be surprised if that turns out to be the case. And here's the important thing, if a child of Night's King, who was a Stark, was rescued and then adopted back into House Stark, and remember, it was Brandon the Breaker Stark who was said to cast down Night's King, then the Starks would actually have the blood of the other washed back into their bloodline, and that would make them kind of a parallel to the Targaryens, who of course have the blood of the dragon. Thus, the two major elements of Aegon's prophecy, an icy threat from the north and the prince that was promised, may be more connected than anyone knew. The threat from the north, the others, may in fact be coming for the prince that was promised as a major part of their plan for world domination. These ideas obviously are a little speculative, they're theories, but that's where I think this is going. The others are gonna try to steal John's body at the wall and then make him a new leader of the others, a new Knight's King, which is why I made the video a new Knight's King, question mark. So bringing this back to Alisanne, we can now see the bigger picture of everything that she did at the wall. She pretty much dismantled every part of the giving babies to the others pipeline. She shut down the night fort. She shut down the practice of the first night. And she brought the night's watch itself more firmly under the control of the crown by addressing its basic needs, doubling the lands under its possession and winning its loyalty. Alisanne walked the wall and felt the chill northern winds, just like Tyrion did in A Game of Thrones. She met wildlings at the wall. She went into the haunted forest to see it for herself. And she even spent a night in the night fort just to soak up the vibes like Bran did. Alisanne won over the Lord of Winterfell, who had become somewhat alienated to the Targaryen throne by way of his brother's death. And in fact, it was Lord Alaric whom Alisanne had to convince to give over the lands of the new gift to the Watch. And then, to top it all off, Cherries went home and within four years began work on a functioning royal road that stretched all the way to Winterfell and Castle Black. Just in case, you know, anyone should suddenly need to move the largest army Westeros can possibly assemble up to Winterfell and the Wall in a hurry. 
the TV show Game of Thrones did a lot of things differently than the books ultimately will when George writes his ending, but it doesn't take a vision in the flames to figure out that it is going to come down to exactly that, moving armies up the King's Road to assemble at various places in the North to fight the others, just as it did on the show. And when it does, I hope everybody thanks King Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne. And finally, as we mentioned, King Jaehaerys apparently returned to the Wall with his dragon at some point later in history in order to help the Watch win a battle against the Wildlings and the Wargs and the Giants. Although I'm dying to know more, I mean, can someone ask George about this, please? We can draw one important conclusion from what we are told, and that is that King Jaehaerys apparently placed a much higher priority on supporting the Night's Watch than the modern kings of Westeros, who scoff about snarks and grumpkins when the Watch writes them of dead men walking in the woods and old powers waking. King Jaehaerys didn't just send men to support the Watch, he literally hopped on the back of his dragon and flew right up there, just to make sure everything was cool. Now I have to think that besides wanting to keep the Watch and the Wall strong, Jaehaerys may have actually thought that this attack was the beginning of the end and may have wanted to fly right up there with all haste, just to make sure it wasn't. Jaehaerys probably wanted to avoid another situation like the one that killed Walton Stark, Alaric's brother, who, again, died while putting down a rebellion of Night's Watchmen. And actually, he died when he followed some of those rebels north of the Wall and then got caught up in a fight with wildlings and giants. In other words, we can deduce that Jaehaerys placed a very high priority on maintaining the loyalty of his most important ally, the Starks, as well as the Night's Watch. All of this is in keeping with basically everything else that we have on record of Jaehaerys and Alisan where it concerns the North and the Wall. And I don't know, you tell me what you think in the comments below, but to me, they seem like a couple of Targaryen dragonlords with their mind on prophecy and prophecy on their mind. Thanks very much for watching everyone. Please click the thumbs up button below if you liked the video and want to help it get seen. And although I'll be at the Game of Thrones convention in LA next week, I'll be back the following week with a video about the other very famous visit to Winterfell by a Targaryen, which would of course be the story of the Pact of Ice and Fire, which will feature on the next season of House of the Dragon. Please make sure you are subscribed to the channel and do double check, YouTube will unsub you without notice for some reason, and I'll see you again very soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.